Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira, from PS Literary Agency. Hello, podcast listeners. Carly here. Author Accelerator is on a mission to change the way people learn to write books. Instead of writers struggling to figure things out on their own, Author Accelerator trains book coaches to give writers the real accountability, editorial feedback, and emotional support needed to write books worth reading. They offer a writer matchmaking service to pair writers with the best book coach for their project. They also offer a variety of events for writers ranging from free workshops to high ticket incubators aimed at getting your polished manuscript or book proposal in front of the eyes of the industry's top agents. And I am one of those agents. Whether you're ready to hire a book coach or you're thinking of becoming one yourself, you can learn more at authoraccelerator.com. That's authoraccelerator.com. Today's guest is the author of five novels, including The People We Hate at the Wedding, soon to be a major motion picture starring Alison Janney, Kristen Bell, and Ben Platt. Originally from Southern California, 
He received his MFA from NYU, where he teaches writing. He lives in Brooklyn with his husband Mac and dog Frankie. It's my pleasure to welcome Grant Ginder. Grant, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here as well, especially considering that I think I stalked you on Twitter to get you to agree to this interview, and then I made you put me in touch with your publicist. So thank you for allowing the stalking. <laughs> um, I No, oh my gosh, I'm so flattered. My Twitter is like a, a constant source of embarrassment for my husband. And so I'm glad to know that someone is enjoying it. Absolutely. Really love it. And yeah, my husband isn't even on Twitter because I think I would drive him crazy. Right. So for our listeners, the book we're talking about today is Let's Not Do That Again. So much to unpack here. Absolutely loved this book, Grant. Just funny and poignant and real. You do, I don't want to say unlikable characters because I hate that term, especially when it relates to women, because I feel like men on TV shows and in fiction, they can be as unlikable or unrelatable as they like. The minute women are a bit difficult, then there's pushback on that. But I know that in most of your books, you are not afraid to kind of challenge characters who are kind of on that unlikable scale in terms of in the beginning, in terms of their character arc. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. I think you hit it right on the head where I think that when you said that women in particular or any sort of marginalized character is not allowed to be unlikable. The majority of protagonists in my books are either women or gay men. I'm myself a gay man, uh, so I'm running from that experience. But look, I think that people are very complicated, and I think that the best fiction, the best writing gets to those complications, and those complications mean that they're not always going to make the right decision. They're not always going to be as compassionate and empathetic and selfless as we want them to be. We are not as empathetic and compassionate and selfless as we could always be. And so... Those dynamics, those contradictions in people are what really interests me. So yeah, I think that sometimes the characters are perhaps, I kind of bristle at the word unlikable, but perhaps not as valiant and noble as as we always want our characters to be. Yeah, and I feel like it forces the reader to do much more of the heavy lifting, because if you give a reader a character who is noble and lovely and kind and does all the lovely things... It takes no effort on their part to connect with that character and find empathy for the character. And the minute you're giving us a character who is in crisis, like, so for our listeners in this book, just to give you a bit of an overview, many of our listeners, you dial in and you ask us to give you comps for complicated family dynamics. This is an amazing book to comp for that because we have the Harrisons, the mother is running for the Senate, a son who's running from his problems, and a daughter running straight into trouble. We have Greta, who's the daughter, Nick, who's the son, and Nancy is the mother. And Greta is especially kind of difficult in the beginning. And you really have to work as a reader to kind of understand where she's coming from and to see that she's in this crisis and she's a bit lost. And obviously, as the novel goes and as her arc plays itself out, she becomes easier. But in the beginning, you make us work for it, Grant. Good. I think that the best fiction should make you work a little bit, and the best writing should. Yeah, Greta is a complicated character. And again, as I said before, those complications are what really interests me. She has been fed lies her entire life, and those lies have manifested within her as this very keen sort of resentment. I think that seeing 
that resentment in a character and trying to connect with that resentment as a reader can be very difficult. But I think that it's also incredibly human. We have our own complicated reactions to things that have happened in our past, things that have happened to our, in our family that have sort of festered within us in interesting ways, in complicated ways. And that's what I was trying to get at with Greta. As you said, I think that, right, she's not all sun, sunshine and roses. I mean, the, the, the book opens with her throwing a champagne bottle through the window of a very famous French bistro as part of a far-right protest in Paris, which is not a very likable act, right? But trying to ultimately understand why she did that and the motivations that led her there and the things in her past that, that brought her to this point is what really interested me. And when I read fiction, that's what interests me as well, trying to understand how someone could make a decision that ostensibly just seems crazy or, to, to use your word, insanely unlikable, right? But the best fiction, I think, allows you to finally understand or eventually understand, if not relate to, the motivations behind a particular action. When I see those kinds of reviews for fiction, when people diss a book because they're like, oh, I didn't like the characters, I must be honest, I find it incredibly lazy on the part of the reader because reading is not like watching television. Television a lot is a very passive consumption of a story. And we read because we want to put ourselves in that character's position. We want to walk in their shoes. We want to figure them out. At least that's what I read. And so when people go, oh, I did not finish or I didn't read this because I, I couldn't relate to the characters, I always find that kind of lazy. And so I love it when an author makes me work for that as a reader, which you definitely do. Now, something else that I want to unpack, because you've done some really interesting things here. So in terms of point of view, we've got about five or so point of view characters that are written either in third person, really close, or some of them, there's like an omniscient kind of quality to the POV. And for example, with Greta, many of her chapters are written from third person close. But then you give us her in the first person, I think only one chapter, one or two chapters, which is very interesting, not something you see often. Can you take us through your reasoning for that, because I always say to our listeners and to my creative writing students, POV is something that needs to be chosen very, very deliberately. You need to come at it knowing exactly why you're choosing the one you are. And so I'd love to pick your brain on that. Sure, absolutely. It's a, a good question and something that I put a lot of thought into. So there are, the book has five acts and the second act focuses specifically on Greta. Whereas the rest of the four jump back and forth between, as you were saying, these different very close third points of view. The second act is entirely Greta's perspective. And so you're in her head, first person, for a good amount of time. And for me, that was necessary because, as you pointed out in your previous questions, Greta makes some pretty insane decisions and does some very, quote, unlikable things that I really needed the reader to understand why she was doing these things. And I think that putting her in first person allowed me to get into her head just a little bit more than even a close third person would. It allowed me to, allowed me as, as the writer to empathize with this character a little bit more, which frankly I needed to do to understand kind of why she would do the things that I gave her to do. I also want to return to something you said really interesting about people on Goodreads or reviewers calling people unlikable and saying, oh, you know, I didn't finish because it was unlikable. And I think that you're right, that it's incredibly lazy. I also think that it's very telling because I think that often people don't like characters because they don't like what those characters ultimately reveal about themselves. And I think it's very easy 
to read a very noble character and to like that noble character because that character reflects your best qualities. But when a character manages to reveal a little bit of your own selfishness or speak to a little bit of your own narcissism, I think that we bristle at that. We It puts us in an uncomfortable place. And so I agree with you that it's lazy. I also think that it's, it's a psychologically very telling of readers. It's so weird because I'm the opposite. When I read these kinds of characters and I see my worst parts reflected back to me and others, it actually makes me feel better about myself. Because up until then, you're like, am I the only person who does X, Y, and Z, and then suddenly you see it in fiction, and you can still dislike it, just as you dislike it in yourself. I mean, this is why books are mirrors, right? We see in them what we already have in ourselves, and I like seeing those awful parts of myself in other people, because it makes me feel less alone, and I think that's such an important part of fiction. It makes us feel seen and, and less alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that part of being seen, as you pointed out, I mean, part of being seen is being seen in your entirety. It's not just your rosy parts, your best parts being seen, but it's the parts that you would rather not reveal to the world, right? There's such an incredible moment that happens in fiction when you're reading a character that manages to express an insecurity that you have or a fear that you have just so perfectly. And so... I think that that's terrifying and can be really uncomfortable to read and to come across in fiction, but I agree with you. It's, it's that sort of fiction that makes me feel less alone. Those kinds of friendships and those kinds of relationships are the strongest because it's so easy to like a friend or to love a friend or love somebody in your life when they're doing everything right. And it's hard when people mess up and you see that sort of side of them, etc. It's so much harder. So in the same way that we have to work harder in life, to love the so-called bad qualities of the people that we care about. It's, I love working for it in fiction as well. So remember for our listeners what Grant said about why in one act he changed Greta's point of view. And that's incredibly important. Because he split the book into five acts and he was able to have her POV in the first person in one act, it didn't feel weirdly jarring later on when he turned her back to the third person. So if you want to experiment with these kinds of things and backwards and forwards, Set up a structure for your novel that's going to make this easier for the reader to be able to do that. Is that why you set up that kind of five sort of act structure, Grant? Yeah, that was that's a great point in terms of considering form and structure in fiction, particularly in a novel. That was one of the primary reasons. I always knew that Greta needed to be in first person. There needed to be one moment where she was in first person. But to your point... I thought it would be very jarring if suddenly, after a, quite a few pages, nearly 100 pages of close third between various characters, we all of a sudden, with no warning, got this very, very almost voice-driven first-person section. And so one way that I thought I could make that a bit easier on the reader is to divide it into five acts. Another reason why I divided it into five acts and why, in fact, I called those sections acts was I wanted to follow with this book a very deliberate narrative structure, right? And so you kind of have a five-act play where you have exposition, beginning, and rising action, and falling action, etc. I wanted to just play around within that classic structure. And so that was another reason why I divided the book into deliberately five sections. Yeah, and for our listeners who listened to our PJ Vernon interview about Bathhouse, remember how he structured his novel according to the progression of a bruise in terms of what happens to a bruise as time goes on and how that changes and the trauma to the skin, etc. 
So you can get really, really creative in terms of the kind of structure you're going for to be the best sort of platform for the story that you want to tell there. Grant, so a question that I'm sure listeners will have, then why not just write Greta in the first person throughout and have everyone else in the third person? So that's a really good question and something that that I thought a lot about as I moved out of the Greta section. When you're in Greta's section, as I said, you're very much in her head and there are things that happen to her and events that she processes in a very specific way that lead her to this action of throwing the champagne bottle. And so for that, I knew I needed to be in Greta's head. But in the other sections, it's very much you're you're back into this political campaign and you're back into the dynamic of and the chaos of this political campaign. And so I needed to be a little bit more removed from Greta at that point because, because giving Greta too much power by putting her in the first person would center her as sort of the main character of the political campaign, which she certainly is not. Everyone, it becomes much more of an ensemble drama. And so to that end, everyone needed to be told from the same perspective because everyone needed to get the same attention. And by giving Greta first person throughout, that kind of puts her as the star of the show. And she certainly is the star of the show for the second act. But for the rest of the time, she becomes much more part of the ensemble. Right. Yeah, that's exactly why I thought you did it and you did it incredibly well. Something I want to chat about as well is your scene structure. You, and you do this a lot and it's masterful. It only took, I think I got halfway through the book before I realized what you were doing and I was like, oh, I like this. So for our listeners, you need to decide where you're beginning a scene. There needs to be a reason why that scene happens at that particular point, why it doesn't happen a few minutes earlier, why it doesn't happen a bit later. If that scene is removed, you need to see it as a domino so that with that domino not there, the rest of the dominoes aren't going to fall. Now, what Grant does incredibly well is he does not begin a scene at the moment of something happening. He fast forwards to later and then he goes back to the important thing that happened. So I'll give you an example. We have two people who are working on Nancy's campaign. There's a moment at which Nancy kind of, her campaign manager figures out that the opponent is going to do something really stupid on television that's going to make him look really, really bad. They, they get him to, to swing a, a sledgehammer at something and he's not very coordinated. And instead of that scene beginning where he swings the sledgehammer and the thing goes flying and he looks like an idiot, Grant fast forwards to the two of them watching it on television and they fast forward and they slow it down and then they watch it in reverse and they watch it a few times and they're killing themselves laughing and then we go back in time to what actually happened in that moment and then we come back to them laughing and the scene moves forward and it's something that Grant does a lot not just with one scene it happens quite often so it's incredibly deliberate. Grant can you take us through this genius way of approaching storytelling? Sure. I'm glad that you think it's genius. It's actually something my editor kind of makes me try to change a lot. But but it, you're right that there are quite a few scenes that are structured in that way. And in that particular scene that you're talking about, the chapter, a few chapters before, cuts right before the moment when this character slings a sledgehammer. And so, so you don't actually know what's going to happen. And so it was a way for me of developing tension. I wanted to play with that break in time before he, when he brings the sledgehammer back, the camera cuts, 
the camera opens way after it happened. You're not quite sure what happened. And so you're a little disoriented. But then you see these two campaign staffers talking about it, which allows you, it's really more of a framing device, right? It allows you to frame a scene in a way that is perhaps a little unexpected and a way that plays with dramatic tension. And so that, I think, is the, the reason why I, I tend to do that. I try not to have every chapter work out like that. I'm also a big believer in this thing that I learned when I was getting my MFA from, from the writer Darren Strauss, who, who I believe he said he learned it from Yale Doctorow, where, where you start a scene, if you, have, if you imagine a boulder on the edge of a cliff, and it's just going to require a tiny bit of weight to, to push that boulder over a cliff. You start at the moment, not when the boulder is rolling towards the edge of the cliff, but the moment where a bird lands on the edge of the boulder, thereby pushing the boulder off the cliff. And so you start, you know, just an instant before. And so I, I try to play with that structure in my own mind in the scenes that you were talking about, where I'm like, okay, well, what if the boulder is in fact already rolling off the cliff? But we don't know how this boulder is rolling off this cliff. Thus, we want to find out, right? We're like, it's like, whoa, what is happening? Let's reverse a little bit and then show the bird landing on the cliff and then show the boulder crashing into a village or whatever, right? And so I like playing with that, that timing in a way to develop dramatic tension. And that's so important again to our listeners, because that's something we get questions about a lot, is how do you include tension? And people seem to think that tension is included by adding all of these things happening, which it isn't. It's the way you tell the story. It's what you withhold. It's what you reveal. And in that scene, it worked so perfectly well. Because like Ron says, previously we cut away and it was high risk, high reward. This guy was either going to do what she was hoping he was going to do and therefore look stupid and make her look good, or it wasn't going to happen that way, in which case he would look great and she would look terrible. So it was really high risk, high reward. And we wanted to see how it played out. And then we see these two people fast-forwarding, going through it to see. And at that point, they could be doing a play-by-play of something that went epically wrong for their campaign. But then we slowly find out what it is that happened. That's how tension is created, not by adding bombs and things exploding, etc., but certainly withholding things and deciding the way in which you're going to tell a story. Now, Grant, something we talk about a lot on the podcast as well is specificity. I'm actually teaching a course on it coming up soon, and I'm going to be giving some examples from your novel and directing the delegates to read it, because actually in the last month, I've read two novels that have done specificity so incredibly well. It's been yours, and then Rosie Walsh's The Love of My Life. What I mean by that is that when Grant paints a scene, it is so much specificity that it brings the entire scene alive. It's not just the things that you would normally notice. There are flyaway things that are happening that you kind of describe that the person is just taking in briefly as they look around, things that they normally wouldn't even notice. So when you write, do you see a scene like a movie in your mind and that's how it comes to you and that's how you're trying to get it down on the page? How do you approach including that kind of specificity when it comes to storytelling? That's a great question. And I do rely quite a bit on specificity. I'm very much a scene-driven writer. I look at fiction writing in particular, novels in particular, as this ratio of scene to montage, right? Montage being the exposition, scene being what it is, right? Being in a scene. And I think what makes a scene come alive is including the details that your average person might not notice, right? 
And so, and those details that the average person might not notice then become, in some cases, incredibly consequential. And in, in, in this case, you know, there's a sword on the wall that becomes consequential kind of thing. But yeah, those specificities, I think that that's, that's how you paint scenes. And, and if you're a scene-driven writer, you can't just describe the color of the walls, right? You need to give us a little bit more than that to let the reader really sink their teeth into. So to that end, specificity is incredibly important to me. I'm also just in my life a um, neurotically observant person, <laughs> I think. I just love sort of watching the world and watching people do really weird things. I'm, I'm very voyeuristic on the subway, just sort of watching how people kind of comport themselves. And so that finds its way into my scenes as well. Those little tiny moments that I think really make up life. Yeah, writer as observer, so, so important to the process. And for our listeners, it's not just general specificity, it's specificity according to what each of those characters would notice. And that's the key to bringing the characters alive. It's the key to bringing the scene alive. Because when Grant writes from Greta's third-person perspective and when he writes from another character's third-person perspective, he focuses on different things in terms of specificity according to what would be important to that particular character. And that just helps with characterization and everything else. Grant, our time is up. I don't know how the heck that happened. What a joy to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, we're going to link to Let's Not Do That Again on our bookshop.org page. Remember, you can support an independent bookstore, support the podcast at the same time, and support the author. Best of luck with this book, Grant. Thank you so much. This was a joy. You've, uh, you've really made me think about the process of writing in ways that, that, that I don't think I've thought about in quite some time. This, this was fantastic. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. 
The other language learning apps use spe speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matcha page. And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while will know that I have a passion for ensuring that African voices are read across the globe and not just in Africa. And you'll also know that I really love my indie publishers. On the 27th of April at 1pm Eastern Time, I'll be working with Rising Action Publishing Collective in support of the Grandmothers Campaign, an initiative of the Stephen Lewis Foundation, who does absolutely amazing work in Africa, helping so many of the grandmothers there who were left as caregivers after the AIDS pandemic. Now, the book we'll be discussing is No Bee From Here, a finalist in the Grey Wolf Press Africa Prize 2019, written by Natasha Omakodian Kalula Banda. The event is free, and if you're available that day, please go to Eventbrite to register for it. I promise it's going to be a wonderful conversation. Today's guest is the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of over 60 novels that run the gamut from young adult action adventures to new adult romance and from women's fiction to erotica. A longtime lover of vampires, dragons and all things that go bump in the night, she loves nothing more than combining her affection for paranormal creatures with her love of writing tortured heroes and kick-butt heroines. When she's not writing, which is a rare occurrence, she can be found trying out new recipes, offering makeup tips online, wandering comic book gaming stores with her sons and watching movies or plotting stories with her besties. A one-time English professor, she now writes full-time from her home in Austin, Texas, which she shares with her family. She also writes as Tracy Deebs and Tessa Adams. It's my pleasure to welcome Tracy Wolf. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We're super excited to have you. There's so much to unpack today, and we're going to try and get in as much as we possibly can. So just for our listeners, the series that we're discussing today is the Crave series, which Tracy's written, and I'm just going to give you a bit of an introduction to that. I'm very nervous of giving away any kind of spoilers. Human Grace is sent to Katmere Academy in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness after the death of her parents. The school is tucked away from prying eyes for a reason. 
as it's the top school for creatures. All of the students are either vampires, witches, werewolves, or dragons. Grace's uncle is the headmaster. He's also a warlock. Her cousin, Macy, is a witch. Now, though the school and the students go to great lengths to keep Grace from realizing that the school isn't all what it seems, she quickly learns that creatures exist and that there's a complex hierarchy to their world. It doesn't help that the children of seven ruling families attend Katmere, and it doesn't help when she falls for the vampire prince. Now, Tracy, correct my pronunciation here. Is it Jackson Vega, or do I pronounce that differently? It is Jackson okay, Vega. So no, it's Jackson Vega. listeners, awesome spelling. It's J-A-X-O-N. So I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't butchering it, because as a South African, I butcher most pronunciations of things. So Tracy, in terms of your journey to publication, I was reading some interviews you did, and you spoke about how at the RWA Nationals, Many years ago, you found out that both Everlasting Love and Blaze were running contests in an effort to get new writers. And these were contests that put unpublished authors' work directly in front of Harlequin editors as judges. Now, our listeners are always really fascinated by writers' journey to publication, especially successful writers like yourself. So could you take us through that? Oh, absolutely. And I think you have done a fabulous job with all pronunciation (laughs) since I've been on the show. I started writing, well, I mean, I've been writing pretty much my whole life, right? That's kind of how it goes. But I had started writing like really with an eye towards publication in, I want to say about 2004, 2005. And I had an idea for a book that actually became my first novel. But I I wasn't sure exactly how I wanted to gear it, what I wanted to do with it. I knew I needed to find an agent. And so I finally signed up kind of out of the blue. I was online and I found Romance Writers of America. I knew I wanted to write romance. Let me start with that. I knew I wanted to write romance, but I didn't know there's so many different kinds of subgenres and so many different things in it. I wasn't sure where really where I wanted to focus it. And so I was online and I found Romance Writers of America. And at the time, they were just a super powerful, super fabulous organization that really did a lot of, of education and, and outreach. And so I kind of out of the blue signed up for my local chapter and signed up for, it turned out, a conference that was happening in like a month and a half. And I, you know, kind of went downstairs and told my uh, my husband at the time that I was going to like just go off to this conference and I was going to learn everything about writing and this and that. So I worked really, really hard to have a pitch idea because as I was looking online, they were saying, you know, you need to be able to pitch to editors and this and that. So I signed up to be able to pitch and then I kind of went through the schedule, like RWA puts out this big schedule for their conferences. And I went through it. I, you know, where was I going to get the most access to agents and to editors, right? I mean, you go to conference for a lot of reasons. You go for craft, which I had definitely gone for as well. You go to learn the business, which RWA was always really good at. But you also go because it provides some kind of some kind of access to be able to get you in front of agents and editors. And I, I wanted that. And so I went and one of the things that Harlequin, which is one of the few publishers in romance, I'm a few publishers in general that accepts unaged and unsolicited manuscripts, what they were doing at the time is they were having these teas or these get togethers where you could kind of meet the editors and, and and kind of hear what they were looking for and that kind of a thing. And the Harlequin was launching a brand new line at the time called the Everlasting Love Line, which did not last very long at all. It only lasted like six months or so. And then everything kind of parlayed into their super romance line. But they had gone after some of their, I didn't know this at the time, <laughs> they had gone after some of their top writers to write for it. And they were really looking to make these like kind of family saga type things. Well, my idea happened to be a family saga. So I went to the tea that they were having and I met 
the two editors at the time, Paula and Beverly, and kind of, you know, introduced myself to them. And they invited me, you know, I was like, yeah, absolutely submit. We're having this contest. Why don't you kind of submit to that? And I was like, oh my gosh, a contest. That's like a perfect way to make sure that they read your writing. You know what I mean? In a way that, you know, when you send it in unsolicited, it could be months or years before they have time to get to it. But in a contest, like it's a very specific deadline and they're guaranteed to read it. And I was like, okay. And then I went to like all of the other kind of, hey, here's our information on our line that Harlequin did. And Blaze also happened to be running a contest. It's a now defunct line, but it was a line that Harlequin had running for a lot of years. And I said, okay, I had two different ideas for books anyway. One was almost written. One was not. And I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And I went home and I like raced to finish like the first book and polish it up and really polish. I think they wanted the first three chapters. That was The Everlasting Love. And then really raced to come up with an idea or to really, you know, flesh out the idea and come up with the book for The Blaze so that I could submit that. And I did. And they ended up becoming my first and second novels. The first were they both placed in the contest. One, I think one second and one, I think it was third. And so Everlasting Love bought the book and Blaze eventually passed on the book. But by then I had gotten an agent because I was like, hey, I, I'm, I'd like to negotiate my contract with Harlequin. And I'd had an agent I'd already been in contact with that I really liked. And she's still my agent. How many years are we running on like now? Uh, 17 years later, <laughs> 16 years later. And, and she said, hey, what do you have laying under the bed? And I said, well, I have this one manuscript I wrote for Blaze. And she ended up selling it to Penguin as my first erotic novel. Wow. So my first, since I was really lucky, my first and second novels were published. So I, I feel very blessed about that. That's amazing. And do you think, Tracy, <laughs> that it was your sort of background as an English professor? Because I mean, I did my degree in English literature, which is not the same as doing a creative studies kind of thing. I think you can really know literature and study it, but that doesn't necessarily make you a good writer. Do you think that's what stood you in good stead? Or do you think you were attracted to becoming an English professor because you loved writing? Oh, I was absolutely attracted to becoming an English professor because I loved writing. My mom always joked, said, well, I'm not going to support you when you're 40. And writers make notoriously, it's rough sometimes making a living as a writer. So she's always like, you had to have a backup plan. Like you want to major in English, that's fine, but you got to have a backup plan. So I actually, I come from a long line of teachers. So I actually love teaching very, very much. And I actually miss it quite a bit. It's been a few years since I've been in the classroom now and uh, didn't really miss it during COVID you know, having to do virtual stuff, but do miss being in the classroom a little bit. But yeah, no, it was definitely because I wanted a career to support myself until my writing took off, until yeah. me being like very hopeful at, at 18. Well, I mean, and it, and it did, boy. How do you write 60 novels in 17 years? This blows my mind. If I get one novel done a year, I feel like I have been super, super productive and I pat myself on the back. And then I look at you and you make me feel like I've really been skiving for the last however many years of my life. What is the key to that? Well, I mean, honestly, like, well, romance is like one of those genres where you, um, you feed it. You know what I mean? Like your fans love you and they want to read a lot by you. So that's kind of just the nature of, of writing romance in general anyway. But honestly, I'm, I'm actually a really fast writer. I don't sleep a lot. That's what everybody asks. Like, do you, like, how do you, because I've raised three boys and single mom and all that. And I'm like, yeah, I've, I've never been a big sleeper, which is a good thing because it gives me more hours in the day to, to do what I need to do, I guess. But um, yeah, I am, I am blessed by, like, I will not write, not write, not write as I'm like working the book out in my head. And then when I sit down to write, it kind of, I'm really lucky that, I mean, I'm not saying it's always easy, but it kind of like, once I get the format and get what I really want figured out in my head, it comes out pretty easily for the most part, pretty quickly. I mean, there are, you know, terrible scenes and terrible days and all of those things that we all have, right? But yeah, let's talk about how you've moved 
move back and forth between genres as well, because that really fascinates me. So you've done the erotica, you've done the adult romance, and then you've got the series like the Crave series. And this is, depending on where I access the information, some just said YA fantasy, some said paranormal fantasy, some said paranormal YA fantasy. Firstly, what would you classify the genre as? I would probably classify it as paranormal romance, urban fantasy kind of a thing. Because it, it doesn't actually take place in a city, but it does take place in our world. That's why I'd always kind of gone towards paranormal versus fantasy. Because it's not high fantasy. It doesn't take place in a whole different world. It takes place in our world. Because I really have always loved playing with the idea, even in, in some of my... Because I wrote paranormal romance. I wrote a dragon series. And I wrote an urban fantasy witch series under a different name, under Tessa Adams, several years ago. And uh, mermaids under Tracy D and stuff like that when I was writing early YA. And I love the idea of playing with our world and the idea of the guy next door being a vampire or the girl down the street being a dragon. Or I just love like, what would it be like? You know, it's like I'm one of those, you know, people who drive around like, what would it be like if, oh, that happened? What if that happened because and it's like some paranormal thing and not some weird whatever. And so I, I love playing with that. So I would probably classify it as urban fantasy romance or yeah. urban fantasy YA. Yeah, I'm picking your brain because when my last book that I sold that'll be coming out later this year, um, Yay! I, I'm always telling my students, know your genre, know your genre before you pitch it. And then I wrote this book and I sent it to my agent and I was like, what the hell is this? Because again, I didn't want to call it urban fantasy because it's older witches all living together in modern day times, but it's a normal world and they, they're witches, etc. And so we were told to sort of pitch it as contemporary fantasy. So these blurring of genre lines always really, really interest me. But something that we've discussed a lot on the podcast, because we have agents on the podcast who read query letters and opening pages, because we try and give people advice to get their own agents and to succeed, is that YA is tough. Getting the voice right in YA is so tough, which is why I've said before that there's probably only two genres I'll never write in. One is memoir and one is YA for that exact reason. So can you speak a bit like in terms of the challenges you faced when you switched over to that? Or was it not a challenge for you? Was it just a voice you were able to access? Um, that's funny because I always say I'd never write one memoir either. That's really hard. It's really, really hard to do. Like I will try almost anything, but that is that is hard. I actually, you know, you take those BuzzFeed quizzes and they tell you, you know, like how old are you really? I'm always 17 every time I take one of those quizzes. So I feel like... <laughs> I feel like I, the voice was kind of always in me. Apparently, I've just never grown up. I've been writing YA pretty much from the beginning of my career. My Tracy Deeb's name is the one I used. I think my first YA came out in 2010. It was part of a mermaid trilogy. And then I've done superheroes. I did a couple contemporary YAs. I did a couple like technological Armageddon, kind of cyber Armageddon YAs. And the voice has never been a problem for me. I do think it has to be authentic. YA is one of those genres where it needs to be authentic. If it's something that feels forced, then they will pick up on it and they will not want any part of it. So you kind of, I don't know, you have to tap into, I think, your inner teenager and you have to kind of just be aware of, of it. Like I said, like, I don't know, I think my voice kind of skews young anyway, because I kind of, even in a lot of my romance novels, they kind of get classified as new adult because I just kind of skew towards that, that college age. And most of my heroes, I don't write young YA, I write like 17 year olds about to turn 18 kind of YA. Yeah, but it shouldn't be difficult because we were all teenagers once, for goodness sake. But to be fair, when I do those questionnaires, it turns out I'm 97. 
So I, I was a Capricorn. I'm a Capricorn, and they say we're born old, and we just reach our real age closer as as we age. So for me, it should be I was a teenager. I should be able to do this, and yet I just can't imagine doing it. Do you have advice for our listeners in terms of those who are tackling this genre? Because I've heard people say that when you're writing YA, like you have to be using contractions so that writing sounds conversational. It needs to sound like this character's having a conversation with the reader, that you should go for first person rather than third person, that you should keep your sentences shorter. Is this really a thing or is that not really a thing? I think that everybody has their own opinion on that. My opinion, the way I write, I don't necessarily do that. I mean, I do use contractions on dialogue and stuff, but I do that when I write romance because that's what we do. I think that's just how people talk. But no, I have really long sentences and I do have really short chapters that I try to hook, put a hook in every chapter because I have really big books. And I think that if you don't have a lot of breaks and you don't have a lot of hook through it, I think it's really hard for people to get interested in it. No, I think... I don't think the voice of YA is necessary. I mean, some of the really great, great YA writers write really beautiful, beautiful prose and really beautiful sentences that aren't short, that aren't whatever, whether I'm talking about John Green, whether I'm talking about B.E. Schwab, I mean, Chloe Gong. I mean, there's so many like really beautiful, beautiful literary uh, YA writers that I think do an amazing job. I think authentic is what you have to go for. And I don't mean like authentically trying to sound like a teen. I mean, one of the joys and one of the privileges, I think, of writing young adult novels is your characters get to experience so many firsts. They get to experience the first time they fall in love. They get to experience the first time they drive a car or get their license. They get to experience the first time they go off to college, the first time something really terrible happens. Like so many really incredible firsts happen to these characters. And I think what you have to do instead of worrying about what the prose looks like, because I mean, there's, I mean, so many of us write so many different ways, just like any other kind of book, right? What you have to worry about is being authentic to those experiences, not talking down to them, not being like, oh, you know, yeah, like you think it's the end of the world, but it's not really the end of the world. But when you're 17, and this is like the worst thing that's ever happened to you, it's the end of the world, you know, and you need to like find a way to work through it and learn from it and and make mistakes. Because God, I mean, we make mistakes. now. I mean, everybody makes mistakes, right? But I think as you're really experiencing the very beginning of adulthood and, and the ending of childhood, there's a lot that goes on there. There's a lot of emotions, there's a lot of chemistry, you know, in your body, there's a lot of, you know, all these new experiences. And I think that you have to just try to write about them as authentically as you can. And I do think that means a lot of kind of putting yourself in that character's shoes and remembering what it's like and maybe tearing open old wounds of ours that we've let scab over and scar over and, and hopefully heal in, you know, the last 20 years or whatever. But I think that that's the main thing to look for. Yeah, such, such excellent advice. And I think that's why so many adults read YA as well, because there's that nostalgia. It's this remembering a time when things were so intense when you weren't quite so blasé about things, etc. So many adults read YA. You were talking earlier about new adults and more and more agents are saying that's no longer a genre. That's kind of been done away with. Do you disagree with that? I think you can't sell it as new adult is what the problem is. You know what I mean? But you're saying you've talked earlier in the, in the podcast about the blurring of genre line. And one of the things you're really seeing, I mean, certainly in the romance and young adult community, is you're seeing the blurring of these. Um, one of the, the biggest YA fantasy 
writers out there right now, like Sarah J. Moss, for example, is writing characters that are really new adult characters. Like as her series goes on from they're like 19 and, and 20, which is totally a new adult age, right? And she's certainly not the only one. A lot of the romance novelists are writing college age characters as well. Some really big ones like Elle Kennedy and Colleen Hoover have like 19, 20, 22, 23, all of which kind of classify as new adult. The problem, right, is there's no new adult section in the bookstore. So publishers struggle to find a place for it, to sell it and all of that. And so instead, like I said, what you're seeing is this blurring of, of genre lines where some of the YAs eventually as the series go on age up, some of the romance novels age down. And I think that, I mean, in, in literary fiction, right, there's characters of, of all ages and there's college age and new adult tend to be uh, in there too, but it kind of depends what you're writing. But certainly in the genre that I can speak of, which is romance and YA, I think there are a blurring of lines. So I do think it's out there. I think readers love it because they love getting through a lot of the first, getting into a lot of the first that are in college, you know, that are a little different than the first in high school as you've gone away and all that. And the first is your 21, 22, 23. And the adult situations that come with that and the romance and the, the more adult type romance that comes with that, that you don't really get necessarily in YA novels. So I, I definitely think there's still a market for it, whether you call it new adult when you try to sell it to an agent is a different story. Yeah. And in terms of tackling a series like this, I mean, each of these books is a doorstopper for our listeners. They are thick, they are huge. And there are, is it seven in total in the series, Tracy? Because I know you've got like an introduction to the world and some of them can be read out of order. Can you just tell us a bit more about that for the listeners who are interested and then just talk about the challenges of writing a series like this? I was actually about to tell you, yeah, there's six in the series, but then you mentioned the Catmere Academy Guide. So there is actually seven. Right now, the first four books are out as well as the first Catmere Academy Guide. We're updating that and eventually we're going to put it out in paperback once all of the books are out and you can kind of like see have it updated for the entire world. But yeah, it is a six book series. And what did what else did you want me to, did you have a question about yeah, it? Yeah, just, just the challenges in terms of writing a series. I mean, when oh, okay. you started this, did you map it out as a six book series? Or is it a case of it did so well that your publisher was like, Tracy, could you expand this for a bit longer so we could make more money off of this? So like, how how was the evolution of that? Well, we started it as a trilogy. And by the time we were into the second book, we realized that there was no, we, I knew and my, my editor, we kind of mapped out where we wanted the series to go, like from the very beginning. We knew where we wanted it to begin and Crave starts really kind of slow as an introduction to the world. And then things really take off and crush, which is the second book. And by court, <laughs> it's a free for all. It, like it's all all immersed in the in this world of of um, paranormal creatures. But by the time we were early into book two, we realized that the story that we wanted to tell wouldn't fit in three books because, as you mentioned, these books are very large. And at some point, you run out of one of the things that I I think is so funny early on, right? Is we were writing Crush, which was longer significantly than Grave, and each book has been longer than that. And the one before is they actually sent somebody out to measure the shelves at like Target because they wanted to make sure because Target wanted to make sure you could have a certain number of books on the shelves and they were getting so long we were afraid we would only be able to have one book on the shelf and then you know then it's constantly <laughs> out you know what I mean it's like ridiculous but these are these are considerations that that went into it and so we had then moved it to a four book series is what we were planning on well there's a big jump between book one and book two there's a four month period not to give anything away where a lot of stuff happens and very soon after readers 
got their hands on book two. Even I think as we were finishing editing it up, we had kind of, my editor and I were both kind of like, I kind of want to explore this four months in between book one and two. And then the readers were just like, you have to give us. you like, we want to know what happened in between these two books. Like, what is going on here? So that became book five, which is the book that we're finishing up right now. That'll be published later this year. And then as we were writing book four, which is a ridiculously large book, I think it's like 300,000. I think it ended up at 320,000 words. It's like a 900 page book we've crammed into 700 and some pages by like a very, very wonderful experienced formatter who worked really, really hard. And we still cut 65,000 words out of it. We actually cut more than that, but we cut 65,000 words that we thought were important out of it. And that is how book six came about was we need to get, these are still more answers to questions that have been raised in the series. We started a new subplot in book four that we didn't finish because once we realized that, that book six was coming because we'd had to cut so much and um, that's how book six came. But book six is the end of the series. There will be a spinoff series because there's some characters that I've been setting up that the fans are excited about and that I love and I want to explore. And so there will be a spinoff series with them. But yeah, that's how the, that's how the six book series. I think you have to be fluid, right? I think you have to be open to, to saying, hey, look, this is my plan. And hey, maybe we need to need to adjust the plan, but also not just keeping a series around just because it's like making money. You know what I mean? Like there has to be a reason to keep a series around, I believe. Yeah. I, and I love hearing about the evolution of that. Before we end, Tracy, could you tell us a bit about the film rights that have been sold? Is that going to be one-off movies for each book or is it going to be a series? Can you tell us about that? Well, right now, I mean, somebody early on in my career had said, an editor had said it at a conference I was at. I was sitting on a panel for TV and film or in the audience. And she had said she never counts on the film until she's walking down the red carpet. And that is advice that I always keep in my head. Super, super excited that the film rights sold to Universal. Super excited that Universal has an amazing production team that they've attached to it and is doing a bunch of other stuff and seems to be really excited about moving forward with starting filming and all of that. But again, fingers and toes crossed, right? That hopefully it, it works out. Like I love Universal. The people that we're working with are really, really lovely and really wonderful. And, you know, I just really hope it works out. Right now they bought the rights to Crave. You have to see, does the movie do well? If the movie comes out, does it do well? Does it not do well? Before you start looking at the whole series, obviously. Yeah. It was really just exciting. Just getting it optioned in the first place is huge. It was super exciting. They came in and optioned it really, really fast. Like we they had it like a couple days and I was just like oh like I thought it was gonna be like years long process and and they came back super quick and we we're like oh my god universal I I mean could I be in better hands <laughs> so I feel really blessed absolutely amazing well Tracy it's been such a joy chatting with you for our listeners we're gonna link to the whole series on our bookshop.org affiliate page so that you can find it there and read it for yourself and see what all the excitement is about and then we keeping everything crossed for you that we do see it on film one day and then hopefully we can have you back for the next book Tracy thank you hi everyone welcome to another comp title session where we have an amazing bookseller joining us to give you answers to your burning questions we have Emily back again today thank you so much to Emily for being here again after the first time so Emily Summer is a former lawyer turned stay-at-home mom who was searching for her next career path when she learned that an independent bookstore was about to open in her Capitol Hill neighborhood she knew immediately that this was what she was meant to do she 
was recommending books with frequency and great passion long before she realized she could do it professionally and has been with East City Bookshop as a bookseller and as its book buyer since it opened in 2016. She's been recognized with the James Patterson Holiday Bonus for booksellers twice in 2017 and 2021 and in 2019 won a Book Selling Without Borders Fellowship to attend the Turin International Book Fair in Italy. A native South Carolinian, Emily and her husband have lived in D.C. for almost 17 years. They live blocks from the bookstore with their two children, two dogs, and of course, too many books. Emily, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Bianca. I had so much fun last time, and I am delighted to be back. We are delighted to have you. So let us dive straight in. So my manuscript is a coming-of-age novel, I suppose you might say. It's a women's fiction. It's about female friendships, unusual female friendships, how we come together, fall apart, and then find each other again. And it's dual timeline. So the past is set in the 80s and the 90s, and the present is set in 2016-17. I say it's a sisterhood of the traveling pants meets This Is Us. And I would compare it to Firefly Lane, but that's quite old. I do think it has a bit of sound similar feeling as Malibu Rising. But other than that, I'm super stuck. Appreciate your help. Thank you. Perfect. So the first comp, I loved hearing about this because this is one of my personal favorite genres, that of a complicated female friendship. I loved hearing about the dual timeline here and the comps that you gave in your voicemail. So the first thing I thought of is an old one, but it's such a classic that I think it's worth looking into. And that's Who Will Run the Frog Hospital by Lori Moore. It's a tiny book that is also a dual timeline female friendship, just an absolute classic. I also thought of Another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Woodson, Marlena by Julie Bunton, which is a more recent one that is wonderful. It sounds like Marlena might be a little bit darker than the one that you're working on, but I also thought of The Girls from Corona Del Mar by Rufy Thorpe, and that might hit those same vibes that you thought of with Malibu Rising with that California angle. But the one that I think might be the best comp, and I would absolutely recommend that you take a look, is... We Run the Tides by Venda La Vida, and that's the story of an 80s friendship set in San Francisco, and the contemporary present-day piece is around the same time as yours. I'm sure they're different in tone and substance, but I would absolutely take a look at that. It's wonderful. Love them. Amazing. And I think in a previous episode, I also suggested The Animators by Kayla Ray Whitaker. It's literally on my list, and I just didn't get to it. So great thinking. Amazing. Get to whatever you need to, Emily. We've got all the time here for you. But that that is like one of my favorite sort of 80 San Francisco complicated female stories. I still haven't read it, but it is on my list because since this is my one of my favorite micro genres, I know I will love it. You know that I loved that book so much that I got it in hardcover, lent it to someone, they didn't give it back, and then I bought it in paperback, lent it to someone, didn't get it back, and then I bought it again in paperback. So this is now where we're at with that. That's how you know you really love something. I also sometimes will buy something in both just because I want to reread it or I want to keep the hardcover pristine, but those people need to give it back too. Hello, I am seeking comp titles for my memoir about losing my healthy two-year-old daughter 
who died in her sleep of unknown causes, uh, sudden unexplained death in childhood. It's like SIDS, but if they're older than one. The sudden unexplained death of Alice's timeline affected my ability to create an enduring timeline for myself. And as a practitioner of Chinese medicine, I began to use the advice I'd given to other clients, noting what worked, what didn't. I did EMDR for the PTSD that I had, and I tracked that journey, that healing journey and my insights throughout. For the second one, our memoir of child loss. First of all, I am so sorry for your unimaginable loss. So thank you for calling in and thank you for writing your story for us. The initial thing that I thought of is a slightly older memoir by Emily Rapp Black. When she wrote the memoir, her last name was Rapp. She has since gotten married and is now Emily Rapp Black. And it's called The Still Point of the Turning World. So the circumstances are a little bit different. This is the story of Emily's son who was born with Tay-Sachs disease. It is not a sudden loss, but a gradual grieving. She's taking care of him knowing that he is not going to survive. But in terms of a memoir about a mother and a child and grief and going on, I think it's one that any editor would recognize. And she is truly just uncommonly brilliant and wise. The more recent one that might be a more similar comp is Once More We Saw Stars by Jason Green. It is also just uncommonly wise and beautifully written. So Jason Green's story is that when his two-year-old Greta was on a babysitting day out with her grandmother, she was killed suddenly in a very tragic accident. What I think makes this one a really great comp is that it is very much about how to move on. It manages to be very loving and very hopeful despite the tragedy. So I think both of those are really perfect comps. Hi, I'm looking for comps for my psychological thriller with upmarket women's fiction crossover potential. It's about a girl who sees her boyfriend's name on a list of people who have died at Yosemite National Park, but his date of death is still six months away over the exact weekend of their upcoming camping trip. And while this has thriller elements like unreliable narration, a murder, the premise itself, it reads more like upmarket women's fiction. So any suggestions you have would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Okay, the third one, I love hearing about a psychological thriller. I want to read this, so so you, I will be on the lookout. I love this sort of foretelling. I think that the upmarket women's fiction angle reminds me a little bit of Rebecca Searle. So S-E-R-L-E. So Rebecca Searle's books read in a very contemporary women's fiction way, but there's always some element of slight magical realism. In Five Years is the book I thought of the most. So in In Five Years, it's also got this sort of like, what what is exactly happening? Am I seeing, did I see the future? Is it going to come true? For the psychological thriller aspect, the camping part really jumped out at me and made me think of the work of Peter Heller. And Peter Heller is one of those writers that I think can do anything. He writes lots of different types of books, but his last two books have been sort of wilderness adventures, very suspenseful, even though they're not traditional, they're not murder mysteries. And I know this has that element in it. But the last two books by Peter Heller are The River 
and the guide. And the guide also might have a slight sort of, I'm not sure if it's a supernatural element, but just a little bit of a like, what's what's going on here? And I think you'll catch anyone's attention if you tell them it is Peter Heller meets Rebecca Searle, because those are two very different writers. But I thought of both of them with that voicemail. I've had the Ravama to be read pile for a while now, Emily, and you've bumped it up. Thank you. Hi, my question relates to comps. So I have written my debut novel, which is a paranormal mystery adult. And it's about my main character who develops the psychic ability to find people's missing things. And as she develops her gift, she goes on the trail for a missing teenager. All the while she is being stalked by somebody in the afterlife who gave her the gift in the first place. It's a little bit cross genre and I'm really struggling to find anything that sounds anyway similar. I am L.A. Thomas and I am based in Plymouth in the UK. Thank you. Okay, so the next one, our paranormal adult mystery with the adult with psychic ability who's looking for a missing teenager. This sounds fascinating. I love hearing about all of these. And the aspect of being stalked by someone from the afterlife reminds me of a forthcoming fantasy that I believe is going to be really big. So it hasn't come out yet. I think soon it's going to be on everybody's bookshelves. It's called Ordinary Monsters by J.M. Miro. M-I-R-O. And that one has sort of people with particular spectacular abilities who are being sort of hunted or are in peril because of their abilities. It is a historical fantasy, so it doesn't have, that's not entirely the same, but I think it would have a similar vibe. And the psychic ability, the sort of detective piece or just missing persons piece, not necessarily detective, reminded me of Grave Reservations by Sherry Priest, which is a new book. It has done well enough that she already has a sequel coming out. And it's about a psychic travel agent who ends up realizing that she too can solve mysteries. This one might be a little bit cozier than the tone of yours, but that's why we offer several comp ideas. Oh, and one more, The Better Liar by Tannen Jones, which is a mystery that I think did not get enough attention in the last few years, but also might have a similar vibe. Another suggestion there as you were speaking now that made me think was The Gates of Evangeline. I have heard of that one. I don't know, but I'm the the title certainly sounds. It um, it was like sort of Southern Gothic, but also with someone who is psychic, etc., etc. So definitely worth looking into that as well. Oh yeah, that one sounds great. I will look into that one too. Hi, my name's Trish. I'm obsessed with the podcast. I'm currently writing a novel, which is book club fiction. It's a thirty-something-year-old narrator, and the hook is that. She is under the impression she's having a miscarriage on her honeymoon, but she is pregnant with another man's baby. It all happened on a very drunken night, the details of which she cannot remember. And so my book is weaving back and forth through the past for clues as to what happened and then back to the present where her husband has found out while on their honeymoon that she cheated. My voice is Sally Rooney-ish, lots of internal dialogue and lots of external dialogue and deep conversations between two characters. So looking for comps. Thank you so much. So Trish, thank you for our next one. This one, they all, all of these sound so good. So I love just listening to everybody's messages just to anticipate these great books that will be coming out 
one day. This one, I immediately thought of The Paper Palace by Miranda Cowley Heller. And the reason I thought of The Paper Palace is because in The Paper Palace, it begins with a woman committing an act of infidelity. And the rest of the novel, we flip back and forth between her childhood and sort of what led us to this occasion. And then what is she going to do in the present moment? So I feel like that would be very similar to our 30-something narrator who is going through this miscarriage of another man's baby on her honeymoon. I also thought, and this is just like a vibe instinct, I thought about Want by Lynn Steger Strong. So it's not about a honeymoon. It's not about miscarriage, but it sounds like it has a very similar voice where it's got lots of internal dialogue, lots of conversations with the characters who are really trying to figure out what has gotten them here in their present day and where do they want to go forward. So I feel like that is one that just my gut tells me that would be a good one. What was the recent show that was very popular with a couple going on honeymoon and the whole marriage falls apart while they're on honeymoon at this really exclusive resort. White Lotus. Yes. Do you think that would work or no? I think it would. Yeah. I think that, I mean, especially depending on like what sort of. The honeymoon angle. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great one. Oh, and I loved that show. So that's wonderful. Certainly right in the zeitgeist. So the last one for this is a memoir and it's by Ariel Levy and it's called The Rules Do Not Apply. And it is a harrowing story of Ariel Levy experiencing a stillbirth while she was on work travel to Mongolia. So it's it's not a light read, but it is a piercing memoir, absolutely unforgettable. And so when I think of someone going through something very difficult on what should be a good trip, I immediately think about the rules do not apply. Okay, next. Hi, Bianca. My name's Christina, and I would be ever so grateful for your help with some comps for my book. Here's a bit about it. My main character, Jane, is a 29-year-old massage therapist. Her new client unwittingly reveals that she's having an affair with Jane's fiancé while chatting during a session. Instead of confronting the client or her fiancé, Jane decides to position herself as the client's confidant in an effort to figure out what went wrong in her relationship and how she can save it, along with her struggling massage practice, which has been financially supported by her betrothed. Along the way, her three best gal pals all have her back, even though they don't always agree with Jane's choices or each other. As Jane tries to reclaim what she's lost, her unlikely friendship with another new client, the aging but unexpectedly sweet lead singer of a stadium-filling rock band, opens professional doors Jane had never imagined and causes her to reconsider whether the life and the man she's been fighting for are truly what she wants. Thank you. I loved hearing about Jane, the massage therapist whose client is having an affair with her fiance. And I immediately thought of a brand new book. It just came out. It's already getting lots of great press and attention. And it's called A Novel Obsession by Caitlin Barash. So this one isn't about infidelity, but it is about a girlfriend who becomes obsessed or learns about and then becomes obsessed with her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend. And she sort of insinuates herself into this ex-girlfriend's life and they become friends and maybe she uses her for inspiration in her work. I have bought this for myself at the bookstore and brought it home, but I think that that one would be a good match. I also thought because of the rock star vibe, and that is something that will get me to buy a book 
no matter what, if I hear there's a rock star involved. The Next Thing You Know by Jessica Strasser just came out, and it's about a woman who becomes involved through her work with an indie singer, an indie singer-songwriter. I think that that one probably has a little more of a, I don't want to say a downer vibe because that sounds negative. I think it might have a more solemn tone than this one, but it definitely has that sort of famous singer angle. And in that same vein, I thought of a book I absolutely loved last year called Songs in Ursa Major by Emma Brody, which is about a young woman who becomes involved with a famous singer. It's modeled after Joni Mitchell and James Taylor's relationship, but in reading it, it feels very much like a sort of ordinary girl involved with this man. So I think the mix of those might be really good. Hi, Bianca. It is so awesome for you to offer to help people like me find comps for our novels. The Voice of Peace takes place in Israel in 1980, just after the signing of the Camp David Accords, when the tensions between Americans, Israelis, and Palestinians are profound. It's the story of Charlie, an American 16-year-old whose best friend has just committed suicide. Charlie is sent to Tel Aviv to live with his father, a man he barely knows, who's doing some boring government job out of a hotel. Charlie loses his guitar and finds himself stumbling into more and more dangerous shit as he tries to get it back. And when Charlie learns that his father is actually running a covert op for the CIA, it takes on elements of a spy thriller. I sure would love to hear suggestions for books that might share similar elements. Okay, our post-Camp David Accords. This one was a challenge for me because it has so many exciting and different threads. For the missing guitar, hijinks is probably the wrong word, but the missing guitar adventure spy thriller part of the novel, I thought of The Violin Conspiracy by Brendan Slocum, which just came out and is a mystery about a young violinist who is trying desperately to get back his prized violin. So that just came out within the last couple of months and has done very well. The father-son in a different land aspect of it reminded me of The Return by Hisham Matar, M-A-T-A-R. And that's a memoir, and it takes place in Libya. It's not in Israel. But in terms of being a fish out of water and attempting to connect with a father who has been distant, it might have similar vibes, even though the actual story is a little bit different. I thought because this is a teenage narrator and part of it deals with a friendship, I thought of a mature YA called Darius the Great is Not Okay by Adib Karam. And in Darius the Great is Not Okay, it's an Iranian-American teenager, but it is about sort of how he feels at odds with his cultures, and it is about a friendship that develops. So I think that one might work. And finally, I thought, because it's set in Israel, I thought of the Israeli writer David Grossman. And I'm sure you're familiar with David Grossman already. I'm not sure if any of his work would would make sense as a comp, but I would certainly take a look and consider mentioning him. I am a physician from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And in my own quest to get out of my chronic depression and anxiety, and mostly my own quest to stop listening to the negative voice in my head, I went out and tried to understand my mind from sort of both a neuroscientific perspective and a spiritual perspective. And in that quest, there were many interesting and wonderful teachings and teachers who have really helped me. And so these practices that I sort of started undertaking were so helpful that I wanted to tell the rest of the world about them. So it's part memoir, part neuropsychology, part spirituality, and I hope to engage readers with its quite personal tone and yet scientific underpinnings 
laced with a dash of humor. Okay, next, I love getting a mix of fiction and nonfiction comps. And this from our physician in Albuquerque sounds so interesting. So the first book that I thought of immediately was Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. And these are short essays about neuroscience. So that sounds like it could have some possible comp potential. And I also thought about Kay Jamison's memoir, An Unquiet Mind. This one is a memoir of bipolar disorder, so it's not exactly the same thing, but Kay Jamison also writes with a lot of scientific knowledge and scientific specificity. She's a psychologist, so I think that blend of like memoir, self-help, and actual science might be a good fit. I also thought about Lori Gottlieb's Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is a therapist, and it's her story of being in therapy as well as the story of some of her therapy patients. But it has some of that same humor and is a really good blend of memoir and more. So that might work. And finally, I thought of Atul Gawande, who I'm sure you have considered before. But when I think of a wonderful physician who is also writing just brilliant work, I think of Atul Gawande. So it can't hurt to mention one of the best. Okay. I'm looking for comps for my coming-of-age memoir. It is an inspirational book. It provides an unflinching look at a child who deals with suicides, various mental illnesses, addictions, sexual and emotional abuse within the family, and transforms her life into one guided by honesty and love. Next, another one of my favorite genres, which is a coming-of-age memoir after a very difficult childhood. So I immediately thought of sort of standbys of that type of work, like Mary Carr and Jeanette Walls's The Glass Castle, but two much more recent memoirs that I think would be excellent comp titles are Hollywood Park by Mickle Jollett, which came out in paperback on Tuesday. He was born into a cult. He left the cult, but was raised by a very emotionally abusive mother, and it's the story of his of a real transcendence. I mean, he he pulled himself out of the childhood that he that he knew and really changed the course of his life. And the next one is called Never Simple by Liz Shire, which came out maybe two or three weeks ago. It is absolutely fantastic. And it's the story of a young girl growing up in 1980s and 1990s Manhattan with a mother who has borderline personality disorder. She is also abusive and she has lied her way through young Liz's life. And so the book starts with Liz realizing that sort of some of the fundamental truths of what she thought she knew about her family are false. And it too shows a real strength of character, lots of emotional fortitude, and a transcending the how you grew up. I I, I just finished that one, and uh. and the reason I picked it up is Henry Holt is incredibly smart in that they put booksellers' recommendations on their advanced reader copies, and I saw Emily's name on the advanced reader copy, and I was like, if Emily loved it, I'm going to love it, and it was really, really good. I am so glad you found it. And I I did love it. I just, I have been selling it hand over fist at East City because I, it, Liz's voice is just remarkable too. Like the humor that she manages to write with, the compassion for her mother. I just love it. Hi, my name is Linda Sexton and I am looking for help in finding comparables for my book called The Branches We Cherish, 23 Truths About Open Adoption. 
there have been a lot of books written about open adoption. Some of the best ones are 15 plus years old. I have found some memoirs from birth mothers and a few others from adoptive parents, but none that seem similar to mine, which is more about advice told through my true life stories, but I look at it more as educational than just a memoir. Okay, next we have Linda, who's writing The Branches We Cherish About Adoption. And I thought immediately of All You Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung, which is, in fact, a personal memoir, an adoptee's memoir. It's not an open adoption, I don't believe. It's a transracial adoption. But I think it's been one of the most successful adoption memoirs, in certainly in the recent past. And so I think it wouldn't help to mention it, even if it's only to distinguish, like, I can do for this what Nicole did for that. The two books that are slight, they're still memoir, but slightly less so. They have more cultural history and more context than a straight personal memoir would be American Baby by Gabrielle Glazer. And that is her memoir of an adoption, but it is also a cultural history of post-war adoption and sort of how it has changed and what the landscape looks like. And then there's another one called Stranger Care by Sarah Centilles, S-E-N-T-I-L-L-E-S. And it's about foster parenting, but through that lens, of course, it will also touch on adoption. And it also takes a personal story, but then takes it into a wider lens and more of the whole sociological aspect of it and the system as it is now. I'm writing a novel which is about a woman who leaves her life in America to go to Paris and find the beautiful things there. She's going to arrive in Gare du Nord and wander aimlessly around the city and not go to any of the touristic sites, just just wander and, and search for the beauty that will give her life meaning. I'm looking for a comp title that is something upmarket literary fiction. The best equivalent I found for not set in Paris would be Kathleen Rooney's Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk. And in terms of a Paris setting, that, that, but that one doesn't include a walk, I found Muriel Barberi's The Elegance of the Hedgehog. Okay, next. I loved thinking about this character walking around Paris and just reveling in the beauty. I want to do that too. And I love the comps that were given, Kathleen Rooney and The Elegance of the Hedgehog. I think those are wonderful. I thought instantly of a book by Lauren Elkin called Flaneuse, and it is nonfiction. We keep it in our travel section, but it is literally about women who walk through these wonderful cities, Paris being one of them, and the Paris is pictured on the cover. So when I think about someone walking through Paris, I immediately think of Flaneuse. I think that's an excellent one, even though it's nonfiction, absolutely worth a mention. And the other one that I might look into, there's a wonderful French writer who is now being translated into English by Europa Editions, who are just as good as it comes when it comes to translations. And she has two books that have done very well here in terms of like contemporary pieces about France. One is called Freshwater for Flowers, and one is just about to come out, and it's called Three. So I would urge you to take a look at Valerie Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N. That's my American Southern pronunciation. I'm not going to try 
try, I won't try to do a, a French accent. I'm thoroughly rewriting a novel whose subject is a passion of mine. I know that the original comps weren't very good, and at this point, they make no sense at all. The novel is set in the year 2000 at a public high school, explores the small town origins of evangelical vigilantism that uses classrooms, school libraries, and school boards as political grenades. Through multiple POVs, it addresses book censorship, which in context is an expression of homophobia and racism. Also important are adult to teen connections and issues around motherhood. The novel explores the effects of culture wars on the community, on friendship, and on family dynamics. Thank you. Looking forward to hearing if you have anything to say. For our last one, I thought first of a book, because of the evangelical aspect of this work, I thought immediately of a book from a former Texas writer, now she lives in D.C., named Kelsey McKinney, and it's a book called God Spare the Girls. That one is set in Texas, but it's very much about the damage that the evangelical church can do to girls and women. A great family story, a sister story, but absolutely set at the backdrop of a church that wants to control. The multiple point of view that was mentioned in the message made me think of this wonderful book that came out last year called A Little Hope by Ethan Joyella. And that's a book that's about an entire town. And in that book, there is not a sort of looming threat of censorship. It doesn't necessarily have the same social issues and implications, but it does have multiple points of view from different townspeople. And you get a very full and rich look at all of the people in the town. I also thought of some writers, not necessarily specific books, but just writers who I think touch on similar subjects and write in what might be a similar tone. And that is Nicholas Butler, who has a wonderful, his first book was The Wonderful Shotgun Love Songs, which is about a small Midwestern town and some high school friends there after their high school days. He has another book called Little Faith that is about the church and or churches and our faith. And I also thought of the writer Laurie Frankel and just her books in general seem to have the same spirit and tone if I am extrapolating correctly. Emily, thank you so much for joining us again. As per usual, always an absolute joy to speak to you and my to-be-read pile goes up exponentially, which is never a bad thing. We hope to have you back again. Please do. I love doing this. This is what I do every day at the bookstore, more for reading comps than writing, but it works both ways. And I had so much fun last time. Some of your listeners found me on Instagram. Some found me via the bookstore and my email, and I loved hearing from people. So thank you so much for this opportunity, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is 
different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.